Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Micah Utrecht, Managing Editor of Jacobin. Things have gotten a little spicy lately between Nancy Pelosi, centrist Democrats, and the Democratic bureaucracy on the one hand, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad on the other. Now, if you're not familiar with the back and forth, we will get into the details in a second. But it's important to talk about because I think some people are tempted to downplay this conflict as this kind of petty internal squabbling that distracts from the real burning issue of the day, of course, which is opposing Donald Trump. But to me, this is really lazy analysis because this conflict is very clearly not a personal one. It's a political one that's based on two deeply conflicting visions of how to make social change happen. AOC and the squad are putting forward a bold moral and political vision And that's a vision that's directly at odds with the tepid, centrist one that Pelosi and many in the Democratic Party have been putting forward for decades. So the conflict that we're seeing right now is a pretty necessary one. At least this is the argument that Miles Camp-Lassen makes in Jacobin in an article called They're Not Just Mad at AOC, They're Scared of Her. Miles Camp-Lassen is a web editor at In These Times Magazine in Chicago. Miles, hello. Hi, Micah. So you've got this piece in Jacobin titled, They're Not Just Mad at AOC, They're Scared of Her. And it's about the recent battles between AOC and the squad versus Nancy Pelosi and the centrist Democratic establishment. Before we get into what all of it means, can you just remind people, maybe for those who have normal, well-balanced lives and have not read every New York Times article and Twitter utterance about this conflict, what exactly is going on between uh, Nancy Pelosi and uh, her squad versus AOC and the squad? (laughs) Exactly, the squad. Uh, so, yeah, so this war of words uh, really started out with a column in the New York Times uh, by Maureen Dowd in which Nancy Pelosi was quoted as really belittling the role of Ocasio-Cortez as well as Ayanna Presley, Ilan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib, uh, this new generation of progressive just uh, just elected to the House for I think she said, you know, they have their Twitter following and whatever. They're really just for votes. This kind of um, really dismissive attitude towards their role in the party, which, as we can see in reality, is actually quite powerful. Um, so, you know, Pelosi gave this quote. Uh, Ocasio Cortez shot back afterwards, calling it outright disrespectful. Um, then uh, Ocasio Cortez's chief of staff. Uh, Shakur Badi got uh, called out for an old tweet of his uh, that was criticizing moderate Democrats. The House of Democrats official Twitter account actually went after him, uh, something that is pretty unprecedented, I think, seeing that happen towards a chief of staff of a current sitting congressperson. Um, then, of course, other Democratic leaders piled on. You saw a lot of the more moderate and centrist Democrats in Congress come out after Uh, AOC and the squad. Um, They accused her of using the race card. Maureen Dowd then proceeded to write another article, really even more critical of Ocasio-Cortez after that, in which she cited other Democratic leaders uh, talking mass about uh, what's going on with these young progressives. 
Um, and then what we saw was uh, President Trump jumped in on it, too, and he got in on the action, and he went even on another level, uh, these really racist attacks calling on um, Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Omar, and um, Presley to go back to their home countries if they didn't like it here, which is a classic old racist trope used um, in response to that. There was some more defense from Pelosi and other um, Democrats because really they had to at that point. But the feud really remains and there was never a real resolution of this um, this battle between AOC and this new generation of young left legislators and the Democratic establishment. So that's a lot. Uh, it sounds like, you know, and some coverage of it has talked about this being sort of like a you know high school spat or whatever. Um, and there's plenty of, you know, you, on one end you can look at it and it's just this sort of like these moments that are made for yas queening on both sides. Uh, but I think it's worth talking about for, a, 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 you know, a number of aspects of it and what they reveal about the kind of pushback that these new left elected officials are going to get from the Democratic establishment what it looks like when you try to transform the Democratic Party, what kind of barriers you run up against, uh, and w- what kind of rhetoric will be used in, in that pushback, as well as like a, just a case study in what the theory of change of these newly elected left officials are. So beyond the sort of like uh, he said, she said, or she said, they said, <laughs> in this case, uh, aspect of this, I think that substantive political stuff is worth talking about. So first, like to... Pelosi's initial statement about the uh, the the squad representing just four votes in the House, and she's referring to the the four of them voting against this uh, border expenditure bill. Can you remind people also of that vote and what what the details of that were? Yeah, the origins of the initial comments that were you know, fairly disparaging were in response to the fact that Ocasio-Cortez, along with um, the other three, all voted against a House bill um, on border funding that Nancy Pelosi had really tried to push through. It is true that they were the only four votes against it, but keep in mind that this uh, border bill came in a moment of a real humanitarian crisis where we're seeing, you know, young children ripped apart from their parents. We're seeing people forced to, you know, climb on top of each other in these really rancid cells at our southern border. It's a real national tragedy that's going on right now. And these are some of the most outspoken leaders in calling out this crisis and demanding a real resolution to it. So they, uh, I think, saw this bill as continuing to finance this same deportation regime that has existed in this country for a long time, not just under President Trump, but under Obama and before him as well. And they, you know, taking a stand and saying we can't continue to pour more coal into this fire of, you know, horrors down at the southern border and instead need to demand something more. Now, what happened is that that bill didn't even end up coming to the floor for a final vote. They ended up voting on the Senate bill, which was even um, provided even more funding for more marshals and border agents and other parts of this deportation machine while providing even less humanitarian aid. So, you know, at the same time that they're taking this stand and getting called out for it by the Speaker of the House, 
what ended up happening is she was pushing through an even more retrograde bill. So that is the real origins of this um, conflict. And I think it speaks to much larger fissures in the party. Right. That's what I was going to say, that it's such a perfect encapsulation, both of the uh, the way that the Democratic Party has operated for decades, which is, uh, you know, being up against this sort of uh, morally abhorrent reactionary Republican Party uh, and occasionally saying the right things about the moral abhorrence of that party. And yet when it comes time to legislate, they basically give, you know, three quarters, four fifths of the farm away uh, to the Republicans. And then on immigration specifically, because that has been the story of the party on, on immigration in particular uh, for the last, what, three decades, if not more, uh, which is compromising constantly with the uh, Republicans who are trying to pursue this more and more draconian border regime, and you, they end up again just giving giving the whole thing away to them, basically being accomplices in the border regime that we have. Not because they're the ones who are uh, actively proposing these new reactionary measures most of the time, but because they're essentially uh, they're not acting like a real opposition to them. Uh, and this, so both in terms of like a general theory of change uh, or lack thereof, uh, as well as on the issue of immigration specifically, it seems like a perfect example of what's wrong with the Democratic Party and why it is important and necessary to have someone like AOC and, and the squad joining her to fight against it and taking this kind of uncompromising moral stance against voting for such a moral abomination. Well, what I point out in the piece is that, you know, Ocasio-Cortez's immigration platform rests on decriminalizing border crossings without proper documentation, um, massively funding uh, aid to Central American uh, countries in the Northern Triangle, the same countries, Honduras, Nicaragua, these countries that uh, have seen horrible crises, uh, oftentimes due to American intervention and or American assisted intervention. Um, you know, we saw a coup in Honduras uh, while Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State under uh, Obama that has led to horrid conditions in that country. A lot of reasons that have caused this crisis did happen, in fact, under Democratic administrations. Um, and, you know, Ocasio-Cortez is also calling for abolishing ICE. This is a, you know, was once seen a, a radical position, but now more and more Democrats are signing on board, even um, presidential candidates like Christian Gillibrand and Mark Pocan of Wisconsin, a representative, are now on board with abolishing ICE. So there's areas where I think Ocasio-Cortez herself, along with her, um, you know, lifting up the voices of movements, has helped to drag the party in a more progressive direction. In a recent interview in the, with The New Yorker, uh, AOC even called for abolishing the Department of Homeland Security, essentially, and saying that that was a institution that served uh, to you know, cause more harm than good, essentially, in, in America. So that is so far of a, I think that that's, you know, a very understandable progressive position on the issue of immigration. It's very far from where the Democratic Party has been, you know, for so many years, the party has talked about further militarizing the border, putting border security at the centerpiece of um, any immigration plan. And this, by border security, it doesn't mean just, you know, having some guards. It means drones and, you know, walls and detention centers and all these things. Um, and, and the locking up people 
uh, in overcrowded, like you know, not giving people soap, not giving people the whole the whole laundry list of things that yeah. we, we've seen on the board. The Democrats have long gone a, a, along with that, and you know, you said they're they're not proposing measures, but I mean, even under Bill Clinton, we saw uh, you, you know deportations go up. Rahm Emanuel, the his um, a, a, an aide for him. Uh, who's of course gone on to have such an illustrious career? He uh, famously said to Bill friend Clinton, of the podcast, right? <laughs> of course, he uh, said that you know Clinton needed to achieve a record number of deportations. Later, he worked for Obama as his chief of staff, and again pushed Obama to uh, up the deportation regime. So it's not as if Democrats' hands have been clean on this, and I think that that's really part of the reason that this is such a shock to the system. You know, earlier you were talking about how you know people might have seen these this war of words as petty or you know just kind of a tit for tat back and forth, but I think it really does speak to this much broader. Um, fight within the party over what its direction is going to be going forward. And it's a fight that we've just started to to really see come out into the open. It's been long debated and kind of mythologized of, oh, what's going on? What is the future of the Democratic Party? I think that this really is a moment where we're starting to see sides taken and we're starting to see these real these debates come out into the open. And it's not happening strictly within the 2020 primary where many people might have thought it would happen. It's happening within the House Democratic caucus. And I think that's an important place for it to happen because, you know, in 2016, a lot of people saw Bernie Sanders as kind of an outsider. And understandably, I mean, he was an independent. Um, he remains an independent in Vermont. Uh, as CNN recently reported, he long even talked about the Democratic Party as being essentially irredeemable, being unreformable. Uh, so it's understandable that his you know, Democratic colleagues in the uh, Congress would look at him with suspicion Look at, you know, Ocasio-Cortez and Presley and Tlaib. These are the people that are considered the future of the party. You know, they're on the cover of Rolling Stone. These are the people that are being lauded as representing the new face of the Democratic Party. And clearly they are representing a very different vision of what the Democratic Party stands for than what Pelosi and her centrist colleagues have um, been pushing for decades now. And so we, that that is a fight that needs to be had. And I think that this is the way it's come into the fore. There was a New York Times article the other day that was about Chakrabarty and was uh, it raised the question of, quote, whether Ms. Ocasio-Cortez wanted to be a lawmaker on the inside or an outsider campaigning to purge the party of centrists and force it to the left, unquote. And uh, it's a good question. I tend to uh, <laughs> hope that she is more of the latter uh, of being an outsider campaigning to purge the party of centrists. Uh, and actually in that interview that you referenced AOC's uh, interview for the New Yorker with David Remnick the other day he asked her uh, are you better on the outside looking in or on the inside looking out and when you ask a <laughs> a member of the House of Representatives that question even if they see themselves as being that sort of outside candidate you would assume they would say well I think we can do a little both we got a foot in you know each side or like I, I look to the movement on the outside but my job is to be their advocate on the inside she just says to him straight up I think I'm better on the outside looking in uh, and that's a pretty uh, that's pretty great. <laughs> like she sees her role as one of using her platform that she has gained from being elected to the House of Representatives uh, to agitate rather than to sort of play ball in the beltway. Uh, and that's something that socialists have long argued that we should 
uh, be using these kinds of positions for rather than purely legislative ones. And she seems like she's actually doing that and actually takes to heart that that is a politically fruitful role to uh, take up, to, to uh, be just very openly and unapologetically agitational um, from the left. So, uh, and, and then, of course, the, the, the other side of that is that when you do that within the Democratic Party, the party's bureaucracy does push back that that uh you know i mean it was it was insane to see that the official democratic house uh, account was uh, uh going after chakrabarty but it shouldn't be surprising to us given what we know about the strength of the centrist wing i mean the 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 centrist and and sort of corporate friendly wing, wing of the party uh makes up the vast majority of the uh, bureaucratic, you know, apparatuses of, of the party. So, assumedly, if AOC continues to see her role as one that is agitational, we're going to also continue to see this kind of push from uh, people within the party. And, and I think uh, observers from the outside should be ready for that and, and ready to, you know, for those of us who are on the left, ready to support the people who are you know, throwing rocks at people like, uh, figuratively speaking, of course, throwing rocks at uh, Nancy Pelosi and the other centrists in the House. Well, I think the other thing that comes uh, out of this, the centrist wing of the party is funding. And that's been, uh, you know, linchpin for all of these different issues is the fact that there's a uh, valve of money coming in from corporate America that has been long uh, keeping the democratic machine up and running. And that is what the DCCC represents. That's what, you know, Nancy Pelosi, I think, in a large role has been trying to maintain, despite the fact that while she's often, and in this case, you know, attacking the left to protect the moderates in her caucus, the moderates are the ones that challenged her for leadership last time around. And AOC and the other progressives were the ones that defended and ultimately voted for her. I think that that's, you know, it's uh, this state of affairs is just uh, a little absurd when you see the where the interests align, you know, the people that want to push the party in a more progressive direction are the ones that are um, have been had Nancy Pelosi's back in the past and yet the ones that are pushing towards a you know a more republican uh friendly view of how government should run are the ones that continually get protected and shielded by the Pelosi's of the world but I think you make an uh, important point that these the way that Ocasio-Cortez Ocasio-Cortez was a you know a bartender just over a year ago and that's I think speaks to the fact that she's she's not approaching politics in the way that so many other people are. She sees herself, I think, as a real movement candidate whose role is to lift up the demands of working class led social movements. And we're seeing that more and more in this new generation of younger leaders. They are not there to just make backroom deals. They're there to push forward uh, the bold action that is being demanded by social movements. And that's why, you know, AOC her, one of her first acts upon getting elected was doing a sit-in at Pelosi's office demanding uh, bold climate action and saying, hey, we need a Green New Deal. And through that action, she was able to get, garner all these international headlines that said, you know, look at this uh, brave and dramatic act by this newly elected member of Congress. And suddenly the Green New Deal was on the, you know, everybody's tongue because they said, you know, oh, this is a new idea. This is and now even Republicans are coming out with climate plans. I mean, this is how you see 
I think, you know, people talk about realignment. This is certainly changing the conversation and doing it in a progressive way. So it definitely gives lie to gives the lie to, you know, Pelosi's claim that these are just four votes. It's clearly there's something much bigger going on there. And in the Chakrabarti uh, profile in the Washington Post that I referenced in the piece, I think that really explains their um, plan of attack and their theory of change, which is that they, you know, justice Democrats and uh, this new generation of um, activists within the Democratic Party pushing it to the left are really seeking to uh, not just give a new, you know, sense of values and purpose to the party, but they're seeking to uh, stop these corporate funded politicians um, and stop these half measures and say we need to actually push for these bold. Uh, ambitious, broad, redistributive policies that have supposedly been the trademark of the Democratic Party in the past. But we need to make things like healthcare as a human right, not just a slogan, but an actual policy in America. And I think that's the real threat. You know, I say in the piece that the that it's not a shock, as you just explained, that the Democratic establishment would respond with such ire to uh, the role of politicians like Ocasio-Cortez agitating and pushing forward a different view and bucking their own colleagues in the caucus. Um, it's not a shock that they're seen as a threat, and it's because they are one. And I really think that that's the the, the case here, that there's uh, establishment that wants to keep itself protected, and there's folks like Ocasio-Cortez that are saying, no, we need a different direction. Which is why it's not any coincidence that Pelosi is in the New York Times saying oh they're just four votes like she sees the rising appeal uh politically of the kinds of uh, proposals that aoc and and the squad are putting forward uh but she also sees just a different theory of change of how you change the world uh and chakrabarty says that very openly in the washington post profile i mean he uh, you know, says that you, he doesn't believe in tacking to the center and try to capture the mythical swing voters or whatever. He believes in putting forward bold proposals that uh, energize people who, in his mind, should be voting for the Democratic Party but aren't because they're not excited about the agenda that the party is putting forward. Um, and that's, like, at the heart of so many of these debates. And there's so many, like, liberal journalists who do not understand that most basic premise, which is, like, Give people something to be excited about. Uh, that, that's obviously lacking from all of the discussion of the, you know, the hand wringing about whether or not the, the kind of policies that AOC is putting forward or Bernie is putting forward can you know play in Peoria. If, if you know average Americans who don't identify as socialists or whatever will be turned off by the fact that uh, these candidates are putting forward or calling themselves socialists or are putting forward. Uh, policies that uh, could be seen as part of a socialist agenda. Um, there's so much, you know, terror at that prospect because they keep saying, "Well, you know, Middle America is not going to go for this." Uh, and it's refreshing to hear Chakrabarty, in his own words, saying that he disagrees with that as a political strategy, and to see AOC and Co. Uh, really rejecting it in practice. Well, I think that that's partially the uh, real value of the term democratic socialism right now in terms of democratic party politics is because there has been such a 
um, you know, d- numbing of what party identification means in the Democratic Party has rightly, you know, been accused of being sold out to corporate interests for so long. And when people think of the Democratic Party, especially after eight years of Obama, they were thinking, you know, these are this is TARP and, you know, bailouts of big banks. And these are the associations that they have. Understandably, I mean, people, some people are going to be uh, wring their hands when they hear the term socialist, but I think that's what's so helpful about that term right now in terms of identification is that saying, you know, we don't believe in that form of Democratic Party politics that is not just about centrism or be, trying to meet the moderates or win over the mythical uh, you know, suburban mom voter in Pennsylvania that Chuck Schumer and Ed Rendell love to talk about. But it's about, you know, yeah, as you said, giving voters a different vision of something that they can um, attach themselves to, that they can be excited about. You know, this is why polls show that Americans overall are excited about Medicare for all. They're excited about a jobs guarantee. They're excited about free college. They're excited about eliminating student debt because all of these types of policies would actually make their lives better and they would have uh, immediate impact on them and their families versus things like, you know, just tax credits and some, you know, carbon taxes here and there and, you know, renewable energies some slight investments here and there. It's, you know, people are sick of that meager, weak tea approach to policymaking. They want to see people that really stand for something. And I think that that's the vision that, you know, the Justice Democrats and folks like Ocasio-Cortez have is that they're When, you know, you stand on principles, when you really are offering something to American people, they're going to respond and it's going to energize new voters. It's not just about winning over the, you know, those voters in the middle. It's about bringing in new voters. And the left is an important block of the Democratic Party's base. And so the the left should be spoken to as well and not just taken for granted as happens um, time after time. And I think that that's what is going to be seen. And look, I know it's, you know, uh, she's a celebrity in her own right, but AOC has been raising money up the wazoo in the past, you know, week since this whole um, feud kind of blew up. And I think it's because people say, hey, this is, she knows what she's doing and she's uh, clearly having an impact, even if it is to the chagrin of the Rahm Emanuel's of the world. I'm glad you brought up our friend Rahm Emanuel again because he has this, of course, sordid history as being one of the uh, attack dogs for centrism uh, and within within the Democratic Party. And he makes an appearance uh, in this debate uh, in Maureen Dowd's uh, second article, Scaling Wokeback Mountain, which our our uh, producer Sarah is disgusted by me even saying the words scaling Wokeback Mountain, uh, but he he shows up to uh, denounce Chakrabarty, and uh, <laughs> anytime you you know a good rule of thumb in your life is that if you find yourself on the same side of an issue as Rahm Emanuel, you're probably on the wrong side of that issue. But he calls Chakrabarty a snot nosed punk. Uh, and says about says to Chakrabarty, you should only be so lucky to learn from somebody like Nancy who has shown incredible courage and who has twice returned the Democratic Party to power. Uh, so, you know, as much as we might try to 
rid ourselves of Rom. He just keeps he keeps showing up. Well, Rom has uh, you know a newly minted career as a journalist. Of course, he's taken on this new role uh, as a contributing editor at the Atlantic. When he's not working at his boutique uh, investment firm, yes, he also of course in is his spare time he's penning <laughs> these uh, these centrist uh, or or the one that you also wrote about about. He, he thinks that elites need to realize that they're right to be attacked by the rising left. Or yes, he, he, he went on a screed and uh, said that we need to stop the abuses of the American elite. This coming from somebody who, in like two years on Wall Street, raised about $16 million uh, in his time right after the Clinton administration. Um, he covered all, up the death of a black teenager murdered yeah, by, well, the, by the police department. I mean, you know, no abuses there to really speak of. <laughs> the The list goes on. But, I mean, it is uh, important, I think, for us to litigate the um, record of Rahm Emanuel because he is, has, was a scion of the Democratic Party. This was considered, you know, the, the, the future of the party. So many people uh, hung wreaths around his neck after 2006 when the Democrats uh, took back power when the big, you know, blue dog surge, essentially. Um, you know, Ryan Grimm has an incredible book out um, called We've Got People that I encourage everybody to read that goes into some detail about uh, the errors of, you know, celebrating Rom for that victory in 2006. But Rom was also somebody who he was one of the architects of NAFTA, which, of course, caused mass outsourcing of U.S. jobs. He helped to push through policies like welfare reform, um, which, you know, essentially ended welfare as we know it was the the quote phrase, but helped to spike extreme poverty in the U.S. He helped push through the crime bill, which was, you know, had incredibly racist effects fueling uh, mass incarceration. And under Obama, he, you know, he told Obama not to push health care reform, which while there's many issues with Obamacare, of course, uh, it did help to expand health care access in, uh, in the United States. And then as uh, and he also pushed mass deportations under Obama. But as mayor of Chicago, he has this horrendous record as well of uh, pushing austerity and slashing social services. And really, he's just the prime example of this neoliberal current in the Democratic Party that has been predominant for the past 40 years. So for him to be uh, the person Maureen Dowd is turning to to criticize AOC and Chakrabarty, I think really does lay the cards on the table in terms of what is the nature of this fight and what it's really over. And it's the, you know, it's it's really the, the future direction. And when I say democratic socialist is a useful thing, I don't just mean that it's a good label for people to attach themselves to. It's good for politicians to say we need to expand human rights into other realms and include economic rights and the rights to health care and housing and education and say, you know, there's basic elements of uh, human needs that need to be taken out of the marketplace, that need to be decommodified and that need to be uh, made universal and not be means tested. And I think that's one of the most incredible things about the rise of AOC and other socialist elected officials around the country is that they are not just calling themselves socialists, but they are constantly using that type of language and that type of framing to back up their agendas, which include these more broadly redistributive programs like Medicare for All and so forth. And that's I think that's what's so encouraging about uh, what's, what's happening right now and why I think that there's going to be, you know, the fissures that are happening in the Democratic Party have been happening for a while, but having this fight out in the open, especially in the midst of a presidential primary, is a, a helpful way for the left to assert itself and to um, you know, ask people which sides they're on and demand that they stand with working class people. Right. It's certainly morally clarifying 
apparently after the all of the recent back and forth pelosi called together a bunch of house members and told them uh, quote do not tweet unquote when they have disagreements with the i house told myself leadership. that sometimes too <laughs> that's a good general uh, life philosophy but uh in this case though I hope uh, very much that uh, Saikat Chakrabarti does not listen to that <laughs> advice because I think his tweets and the and the oppositional mentality of uh, AOC and the squad and this rising democratic socialism and Bernie and, and all the rest of it are very useful for uh, you know calling the question for the Democratic Party uh, on whether or not they're going to be a party that continues to offer these sort of milk toast and tepid measures and capitulate to the majority of what the Republicans want or if they're actually going to stand for something and actually fight back against the reactionary agenda of the right and propose their own agenda for the future. So, um, Shakarati, please keep tweeting. <laughs> I agree. And I think that that's, you know, Twitter has become kind of one of the arenas of this battle. And that's when you have somebody like AOC and Ilan Omar as well, who are very savvy at social media, they're able to use their massive platforms that they have there to push out these um, more left-wing ideas. And I think that's critically important because otherwise that's essentially seeding that field to either, you know, hack democratic operatives or centrists that Lord knows they don't know how to use Twitter, um, or to people like Donald Trump and his, you know, right wing, uh, proud boy kind of base that while they are, you know, toxic and, you know, morally repugnant, they're very good at uh, getting people to pay attention to them. And so having people that are able to, you know, do the opposite, uh, uh, you know, accomplish the same goals, but do it towards uh, left-wing priorities, I think, is a really critical thing. So, you know, I understand Nancy Pelosi's position trying to keep her caucus together and saying, you know, when we have these intra-party fights, it makes us look bad. Um, but n- not tweeting at all, I don't think, is going to solve the fundamental disagreement that is at the heart of this battle within the party. Right, which is not going anywhere. We're going to continue to see this kind of fight happening and to me it's important to be clear about the fact that it does have a real political and moral basis that it is not some kind of intrapersonal sniping that we're talking uh, essentially about you know if a party the democratic party can actually act as a real opposition party to this rabid right-wing agenda uh, and so when you see the House Democratic Twitter account or uh, Nancy Pelosi in another Maureen Dowd column or whatever, uh, you know, making these kinds of comments against the rising left. It, it, you, you should remember that it is that it is not some just sort of like pettiness. It's there are actual substantive political uh, issues at stake here. And there's one side of history that is the right one to be on. Uh, and there's one that's the wrong side of history to be on. And it, it seems clear to me that that Pelosi is on the latter and that AOC and the squad are on the former. Well, just look at some of the things that the um, that AOC has pushed forward. Uh, you know, a 70% marginal tax rate. That flies in the face of what the Democratic Party has been uh, saying for decades, which is, you know, essentially 
buying into conservative talking points that say we need to, you know, unleash the power of the markets and we can't punish um, the wealthiest Americans too much or else that'll, you know, drive down entrepreneurship or opportunity. And it's essentially sticking to this trickle-down theory of economics. And um, they're saying no. They're saying that's that has been proven an abject failure. We are no longer, you know, uh, fighting over what should how we are going to orient programs to mean te- means test them the most we are saying we need to uh, tax the rich at incredibly high rates we need to redistribute their wealth into social programs that are universal that will not require people to you know hit some benchmark of being worthy enough to uh, access or achieve them and that we need to um, radically rethink our role uh, on the international stage as well and stop you know these never-ending wars and American intervention and colonialism that has uh, dominated American foreign policy for so long like these are real uh, fissures these are not just you know small tweaks that they are trying to push for they're trying to reorient not the party, but the whole country towards a more left-wing view of politics. And, uh, you know, you could also substitute for left-wing, like, humanitarian or just, you know, egalitarian or anything that's not the corporate-centered neoliberal consensus that has been uh, driving politics in America for at least 40 years, and that is so fully represented by, again, people like Rahm Emanuel and like Joe Biden, for that fact. And, you know, look at what Bernie Sanders is doing right now. He is a prime example of seeing this on the presidential uh, stage as well. He just put out this list of uh, anti-endorsements of these powerful, rich people that have said things about him, like, you know, you were the Antichrist and, you know, third way, this centrist think tank saying anybody but Bernie and he's an existential threat to the party. Like, he is out here naming class enemies, saying that this is, you know, these are the people that are going to fight to the end to protect their interests. And we need to see them at, rightfully as our enemies as working class people. That's very similar to, I think, what AOC is doing when she's questioning these pharmaceutical representatives and CEOs, you know, on the House floor and saying, you know, how can you charge so much for insulin when, you know, you're making these massive profits? It's really questioning the um, heart of uh, financial power in America and how it rests in the hands of these very few white men that tend to control how the economy operates is certainly industries like healthcare and um, education and so forth. So that's, you know, an example, I think, of how this is a much bigger fight than one just over the border wall, though I think that the border wall is a very instructive way in to look at the outlines of this debate. Well, it sounds like AOC and the squad are going to continue to rack up these kind of anti-endorsements from Rahm Emanuel and from centrist Democrats and uh, I think like Bernie is doing with his anti-endorsements page they should uh, you know take a page out of the FDR playbook and welcome their hatred. <laughs> yeah well you know Bernie famously said in 2016 before the Illinois primary I'm very happy to not have Rahm Emanuel's endorsement um, so I think maybe you know AOC if you're listening you could you know maybe tweet that one out I don't think you'll lose many fans. You but. would have two socialist magazine editors in Chicago who would be just ecstatic that would just make our year if you could do that that'd be the nice little cherry on the Sunday of Rahm Emanuel leaving office as Chicago's mayor yeah well maybe to end it I'll just 
quote from Corbin Trent, who is AOC's spokesperson, who Maureen Dowd mentioned in one of her columns. He said, quote, the greatest threat to mankind is the cowardice of the Democratic Party, which I tend to agree with. So it's a mic drop uh, yeah, quote right exactly. there. Let's, uh, let's hope that uh, the cowards within the party continue to be confronted. Miles, thanks a lot. Thank you, Micah. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com.